Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Ron Klein, who is also known as the grandfather of possibilities. Ron is the guy that invented things such as the magnetic credit card strip and a few other inventions that have affected hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in the world. Ron, how are you today? Fine, and I'm delighted to be on your show, Eric. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, so Ron, I guess, you know, a very broad question first. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, myself, um, uh, I grew up in in Philadelphia during the Depression years. Um, I didn't come from a very wealthy family. My family, my dad was a postal worker. My mom was a, a sales clerk in a department store. And they were just regular people, very, very supportive of me. And growing up during the war years in the Second World War, um, I learned to entertain myself and make my own toys out of cardboard and masking tape. I could make anything. Uh, However, I was very inspired and mentored by my mom's father, who was my grandfather, of course. He was a famous inventor. He invented the the, uh, first steam propulsion ship and invented uh, the torpedo detector during the First World War for submarines. Uh, He invented the pressing machine for tailors. And when TV first came out, he invented the rabbit ears for TV. So, and I was very, very inspired by him. I always hung around him and he even taught me how to sew. So I'm a good seamstress or seamer, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) And I am also a musician growing up in Philadelphia. I, uh, I learned how to play the guitar at a very young age, and in Philadelphia, they have a New Year's parade every New Year's, which is uh, with, uh, they call it the Mummer's Parade, and I parade as a string mummer, a string band mummer for many, many years, playing the banjo and the guitar, and then uh, as I grew up, I was even on the Paul Whiteman talent show when I was age 16 and won first prize, which was a refrigerator for my mom. And that got me off to New York to be on his TV show. Uh, I don't know if many of your listeners remember Paul Whiteman, but he had a talent show in those years. So that's my childhood. Okay, great. So you know, why don't we why don't we dive into? I guess we can dive right into. It. And, and before I do, um, you know, it's really interesting because your grandfather made all these all these did all these crazy inventions, and then you came up with all these great things. And uh, do you have your grandchildren? You know, invented a lot of crazy things as well, or well, I have one grandchild that's very inventive. She's a young gal, 19 years old. She's uh, studying at uh, FSU College in Tallahassee, and she's studying to be a designer, and she's very, very talented. Uh, I was very artistic growing up, and I, in fact, my, my avocation then I thought was going to be commercial art in uh, developing, advertising, and drawing. And uh, when I was drafted in the service, I came back and went in for engineering. But she has, seems to have those talents. My other children, no, they're not. Uh, they're not entrepreneurial, and they're not talented from the standpoint of inventive, inventiveness. Uh, my grandchild, I have one grandson that's very creative. So hopefully, he'll turn out to be something great. Got it. So it sounds like the, there's only a, you know one or two inventive. You know, it, for each generation, there's one or one or two inventors that come out of the family, right? Exactly. Is there anything special that you guys do to kind of translate these learnings down? No, just. Pay attention and learn something new every day. That's what I preach to my children and that's what I preach to my grandchildren. Be aware of everything that's around you because knowledge is power 
And you never know when you're going to use that little tidbit of information that you've picked up from someone else and then researched it because that's that's the answer. Be knowledgeable and have a full idea of everything that's going on around you. What's, all right. I love it. So let's talk about inventions here. You know, the, the magnetic credit card strip, you know, what can you tell us about it? That was probably one of the simplest challenges I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it sounds foolish, but that is, Eric. Um, I, I look at things in a very, I, I look at problems as challenges. I turn every problem into a challenge and I simplify it. I establish in the challenge, what is the given that I'm working with? What's the goal I'm looking for? And everything else in between is just the minutia of the journey, the hurdles and so on and so forth. But you have to really pay attention to what is it that you're working with and what is the challenge. And I had a, a client who came to me from a very large department store, a director, and it was a simple challenge because in those days, in the early 60s, credit card companies provided a long list of negative account numbers to all the merchants. In other words, they knew who were credit risks, and they would take those account numbers, provide them to the merchants, and the merchants should not sell to those people. So every time somebody would come in to make a credit purchase or a charge purchase, the, the merchant would have to open up that monthly book that he would get from the credit card companies, look down the long list that was in chronological order to see if that person's number was on there. If it wasn't, they were good to go. So using my, my, my technology is, well, the issue is what's the given? The given is there's a long list produced every month by credit card companies of negative account numbers. What's the solution? We want the, the merchant not to be selling to those people. So we've got to give the merchant some kind of a tool that's a little bit faster and a little bit easier that doesn't provide the delays of people queuing up for sales. So I took all those negative account numbers every month and put it into a memory system. At that time, it was big magnetic drums. You know, no internet, no PCs at those times in the 60s. And then I gave the merchant a little keypad connected to the memory system. He would key in the account number, and that was it. So that was really the first point-of-sale device. Very simple solution. However, I figured we have to put some smarts in that little piece of plastic because that would really speed up the operation and it would take any possible error away from the merchant of keying in an incorrect number. And my first thought was to punch holes, the hollereth code, into the credit card, knock off the little edge of the corner, so make it look like a punch card and punch holes in it. But that was not economically feasible. And right around that time, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders came out. And I figured, you know, this is a perfect example of as to why we have to pay attention. I learned about reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, very simple process. You record on a magnetic tape, music or voice, and it had motors that governed the speed, so it didn't sound funny when it passed the little reed head, and it was a current speed. And I figured, well, geez, if I use something that's familiar to me, just take a little piece of that tape, cut it off, record the account number on that little piece of tape, paste it on the back of the credit card, and make the human the motor. So as long as they would put it in slow and pull it out rapidly, because I put what was called start-stop synchronization pulses on the tape. So as long as they pulled it out rapidly, it looked like the mimic tape recorder. So that was a long answer to a very simple problem. And that's how the magnetic strip on the tape became an, an invention. How did you how did you get the word out for, for this invention? Well, it, it really wasn't that difficult because think of what the largest department store in America is, and they and it was the director that came to say, solve my problem, speed this situation up, and I said, here it is. So installing that in New York in this largest department store all throughout their system. Uh, that got the word out big time. And then it just went viral all over the country. And then uh, in 1970, American Express picked up that whole concept to use it in the credit industry. And then, of course, it was it was just billions of people after that. Got it. So backtracking a little bit, let's, let's hear about the story where, you know, you said someone, you know, a director of a large department store reached out to you. you know, how did you get to that point where people started reaching out to you for inventions? Well, my, my expertise was after I came, I was drafted for the service during the Korean War at age 18. 
And that was when I thought I still wanted to be involved with graphic arts and commercial art. But I really loved engineering and, and technical aspect of things because I was inventing a lot of my own toys and did a lot of reading. And I was drafted at age 18, went off to Korea. When I came back, fortunately, I had the GI Bill and I was able to go to college under the GI Bill. And during that time, I realized that I had a little bit of a different talent. It wasn't just the technical talent that I was developing. And I got a job with a large company at the time as a development engineer after I graduated and then even worked my way up to another position with another large company as chief engineer and then realized that I was an entrepreneur and a liaison between the technical staff and the, the consumer, the customer or the merchant, because I tried to convey to them the message that they understood in a manner and in a way that the technical people would understand. So then I realized that I truly was an entrepreneur. That word got out that I was the person that could solve problems and understood and could take the, the customer or the consumer to the engineers and, and form a, a liaison where they would understand each other. And um, after I did that, and I was working for a very, very large company, I realized that I was a problem solver and I could come solve challenges and, and find that gift behind the challenge. And I formed my own little company and that company just started growing. And it grew and grew, and I had a, a staff of 125 people and had a few private placements to fund it and was involved with a lot of very interesting projects then. And then the time came to take it public. And that's when I understood and learned all about IPOs and what you have to do to take a company through a public offering. And it was very successful, and the company even grew further. And then after that, sold it off and started forming other companies and, and going forth with my, my career. During that time that I had the public company, we developed other things such as MLS, multiple listing service for real estate, voice response for the banking industry. Uh, I came up with the formula for Purdue on how to uh, grow chickens to full maturity in eight weeks and healthier chickens other than the long-term maturity. and. Uh, then got involved very interestingly uh, with the New York Stock Exchange, and that's a whole story in itself. All these inventions, you know, each of each of them requires a certain focus and a certain level of expertise. So, was it, you know, did you hire a lot of smart people around you to figure these problems out, or was it you kind of spearheading each one? I'm just trying to figure out how how the, all these different problems were solved because these are all big problems that were solved. Well, they're big problems, but and I to answer your question, I spearheaded them all myself and surrounded myself with good engineers, drafting people. Of course, in those days, software wasn't even a word. Everything was solved with hardware. So I had a real good staff of drafting people, engineers, manufacturing people, and good managers, and we worked together. I listened to what was needed in the field and then came up with solutions on how to solve those problems. But... I always simplified things in a way where I could understand them. And once I could understand them, I could spearhead and actually take them through the results. So as clients would come to me with their problems, I was able to reduce it to a simple challenge and come up with a solution. And that, that's the way I, I approached everything. Okay. Can you share that, you know, and you might have alluded to the framework, but I, I mean, it, can we kind of, you know, crystallize what that framework looks like so, so people understand how Ron Klein solves problems? Well, the framework is I never had a strategic plan. What I've had is always an organized way of um, simplifying and recognizing an opportunity. So the challenge was there, and I redu always reduced it to a simple challenge. So let me see if I can explain it a little bit better. Um, I always looked for opportunity, and I never really thought about – I was able to recognize opportunity when it came right in front of me. So as, there's, as people would come to me and explain to me either their idea, their concept, or their challenge, I would just step back, simplify it, and say, here's my answer to the solution to this problem, and this is the way we're going to approach it and be very flexible. And all along, not being stubborn, but having stickability, 
I would be very flexible in saying, if we have to change direction, we'll change direction. And I was never concerned with, with anything failing because, to me, failure is a mistake that you're learning from and you just change direction and follow that direction. Anytime I got involved with any project, I, I would consider it as I'm opening a door to a, to a task. And before I would close that door behind me, I would look around in that environment, make sure there was a back door, worst casing it, to be able to get out. So psychologically, I always felt that what's the worst thing that can happen? So I would say as long as there's a way out, and if I worst case it, and it's just a matter of starting over again, I'll come in and close the front door behind me. So that was always my exit strategy. And it worked because in most cases, you do have to change direction or do some rethinking because you learn along the way. And that was my, my solution to having success and understanding what we're looking for and how to solve it. It's, it's almost what we learned in grade school when you were given those word problems with all that superfluous information. You've got to filter all that out and just look at what it is that you're working with and what the given opportunity is and then look for the solution. So the key word is simplify. Simplify, absolutely. If you simplify, everybody understands. We're all on the same page. And I always represented each task graphically because there's so much that can be lost in the narrative portion of transmitting or in communications. That's fine after you're able to graphically represent what it is that you want to do. The old simple approach of flowcharts. Anything, any task you take on, even if you wanted to make a home movie, if you put that in a flowchart, what do you need? You need a camera. You need a subject. You need a location. You need film and the old cameras and so on and so forth. And if you put that down as an element and then strategically connect the dots and connect the arrows saying, well, I need this first before I can do this and so on and so forth. And then when you stare at that yourself, you start realizing, well, wait a minute. What ifs? What did I miss? Do I really do I have everything represented here? And once you have that, it's so easy to offer that to the other person and they get it. Then you can define it graphically, or I'm sorry, gra uh, uh, in, um, in a uh, narrative way. But you must graphically represent something first so that everybody's on the same page and it simplifies it. Got it. That's interesting because, you know, you, you hear about, you know, people growing companies. And when you, when you get to a certain size, it, it makes sense to document all these processes. So you're saying it not, not only document the processes, but, you know, have graphical representations where it's even easier to understand versus having pages and pages of documentation. Is that right? That's right. And I always found that taking a company from startup to the first million dollars is pretty much the entrepreneur who really understands what's, what is needed to launch and all of the processes that he has to learn in order to get to that far. And there's a lot of technical things you have to learn. Again, paying attention, listening to good advisors, and surrounding yourself with you know, very helpful people that know what you don't know, then you can take that to the point of operation and grow the company to the first million dollars. Now the challenge is getting from one to ten. That is a very interesting process because it's a whole different thinking process. And once you do that, taking it from 10 to 100 usually is not the same person because now what you have to do is surround yourself with good systems people, operational people that know how to grow it to the next level. Got it. That's okay. You know, at, at the at, you know at, at the entrepreneurs organization conference, um, you know, you talked about reading. I, I think it was the was it the encyclopedia cover to cover, or was it something else? Yes, it was. My first challenge was um, I had in the service. I, I well, first before I even got to the service, at age four, I had a very serious disease, and I was hospitalized for three months, and uh, it was an infectious disease and scarlet fever, and then I, I came out and. Um, started reading a lot and studying a lot and learning about everything that was around me because I was very inquisitive because I had the, the three months in the hospital to think about what's happening and what's going on. And then at age 16, I don't know how or why, I became very ill with infectious hepatitis. And that was the time that the, uh, the infectious disease controls had very little knowledge about where it even came from and how I contracted it. And I was hospitalized for three months again. I was jaundiced. 
I was my liver was turning cirrhosis, and I was very very ill. And after they finally dismissed me from the Hospital for Contagious Diseases, I had to convalesce at home for a year and a half. I wasn't permitted to go to school. I figured, what in the world am I going to do? And I figured, well, this is an opportunity. It's a challenge. And we had a full volume set of all 18 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica at home. And I figured, this is great. I'm going to start reading. And in a year and a half, I read 18 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica cover to cover. And what a wealth of information. And from that, that gave me the insight, the thought process of pay attention to everything around because you never know when you're going to need this knowledge, and knowledge is power. So that was the time that I read all of the encyclopedias. Do you think that experience changed your life? Yes. It made me thankful for every day that I had. You know, today we have, we have to look at life as uh, quality and quantity. If you have both, what a gift that is. At this point, I look at myself, I'm going on 80 years old. What an opportunity to have quantity and quality. And I think when I realized that I had the opportunity to, to qualify my life and bring more information into my life, that really changed my thinking process. And then when I came back from the service, of course, then I, I truly became and felt like I was an adult and I really wanted to accomplish Wow. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, we had someone else on their show. His, his parents let him drop out of school at age 12. And it's, you know, his, his dad had him read, you know, like four or five biographies every, each and every single day. And he said that totally blew his mind up. And, you know, you being able to pretty much be, you know, you're, you're bedridden and being kind of forced to take on this information. I, I think it just goes to show that, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to train your kids to read a lot more than they should be reading right, or they, that they're reading right now. Read and pay attention to what's going on. There's so many tools that we have today that, that we didn't have in my days. Uh, and there's so much that advantages that the young people can take, advan take advantage of and so many opportunities. And they, they absolutely do have to read more. When I came back from the service, I had an injury and then even had further injury through some unfortunate automobile accidents. And I had very serious spine conditions. And to this day, I... I can't stand or walk too too far. I can walk maybe 100 yards and stand for five minutes, and I have this inoperable spine condition. And I figured it has to be able to be fixed. The neurosurgeons won't operate on me because it's too risky, and I would have to be confined to a chair for the rest of my life and be inoperative or be inactive. So I figured, well, how do you fix it? I fixed any other problems. Maybe I can fix this. So understanding it, I have no discs in my spine, in the lumbar. And I figured, okay, if I can spread those lumbar uh, vertebrae out so that there's no pinching of the nerves, I'll get some relief. And I figured, what's the best way to do it? And I studied, I went and got the Gray's Anatomy book because I figured I want to learn all about the human body. And I read that cover to cover. And I learned so much in Gray's Anatomy over and above the spine. But to fix the spine, I started about 30 years ago, I started riding a, a bicycle on the street. But it was a racing bicycle where you're bent over and your hands are down on the drops. And I discovered that after I was on the bike for about five minutes, it opened up all the facet joints in my spine where the discs should be and stopped pinching the nerves. And I was totally pain-free. No more sciatic pain, no, no pain for the two hours while I was riding. So that psychologically trained my brain to say, you can get rid of the pain. You can really have relief if you follow this process. So I started telling and teaching a lot of the senior citizens that same process who have spinal conditions. And to this day, I, I'm still riding a bike. I ride every day, every morning. Um, and How I was many doing, miles is that every day? I ride 30 miles every day. And there what happened was... As I was riding, somebody was telling me about triathlons. And I said, well, what's a triathlon? Now, you know, you, you swim, you bike, and you run. Well, I couldn't swim because that was injurious to my spine. I couldn't run, but I could certainly bike. So I became part of a relay team. And after a while, I was entering into these triathlons, and we were winning bronze. Then we started winning silver. Then we won gold. And I figured, this is wonderful. Then someone told me about Senior Olympics. 
And I said, well, what is that? Well, that's where you race time trials against yourself. And I started going out at the county level, winning medals. Then I started going out at the state level. And in 2003, I was so efficient at riding and so good at it. And this was well up into my high 60s at that time. Um, I became athlete of the year in the state of Florida in my county. So amazing. One gold medal. And today I'm still doing it. And here I am, you know, going on 80 years old, still riding the bike and feeling great. Yeah, you're when, you're incredibly sharp right now. You know, you you're you're, you're you know when I met you, you're, you're you're fit as well. So it's just like you know, it, it's helped you. It's clearly helped you a lot. But you know, what else kind of helps you keep such a sharp mind? Thinking about quantity. Well, having realizing that I've given such a gift to be able to share my wisdom. And what's important to me is that anyone who has had great experiences and have had earned great wisdom during their, their life and growing up, I think that's wonderful providing you do something with it. So many people reach an age and that they think they have to retire. I've failed at retirement three times. I tried it. It doesn't work. And if you don't do anything with your life after you've gone through and gained all this wisdom, then in my mind, I really think you're a hasmet because it was before. Now, using all that knowledge and wisdom and now applying it to new ventures and still creating, now I think you're a very special person because you have credibility of past wisdom and all those years of experience and mistakes that you've made and now still showing people how you can create new things, which I've already done and I've got an invention underway now. So my my answer to life is don't stand still. If you stand still, they'll throw dirt on you. That's one thing I, heard, I found out. <laughs> and never stop because when you stop, you've given up. You don't stop until you're empty. And that's the, when the day of demise comes. Don't stand still. Would you say, you know, I had, I had someone, you know, I asked someone, you know, what, what they'd like me to ask you before the show. And, you know, one of their questions was, you know, what's, what's your secret to having a happy life? Do you think don't stand still is that secret or is there another piece to it? The secret is learn how to listen. Listen to other people. Everybody has a story to, set, to tell and everybody has wisdom to offer. And I, I don't see any difference in any level of any people. We're all created equally, and we all have wisdom in our own way. Some are a little bit highly, more highly educated, some are not, some are a little bit more creative, but I can learn from anyone. And I learn something new every day. And because of that, it keeps me going and it makes me happy. I'm happy with myself and happy being able to help others and give them direction. And I think that's, that's the answer to a successful life. Yeah, and just to let the audience know, I mean, you know, Ron's Ron's been married for over fifty-five years, so that's that's you know that's yeah. an incredible feat in itself. Well, she's my best friend. I keep telling her now, maybe we'll start living together now. <laughs> <laughs> Great uh, soulmate, and she's I I learned so much from her, and and it's wonderful. It really is. I I hope to have another fifty-five years if they're healthy. <laughs> I hope you do too. I think there's a lot we can learn from you. Um, so let, let's, you know, speaking of learning even more, I mean, you know, the, let's let's talk about, you know, learning how to IPO. I mean, what 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 secrets can you share about that? Well, at the time that uh, I formed my company, because this is when I left the large company and I said, I'm an entrepreneur. I can really solve people's problems. I'm going to form my own company, and I started, and I got a few wonderful little contracts that was funding it. But then as we were growing, I needed more people and I needed funds to grow. So I, I've checked with a few funding you know, angels and, and venture capitalists and they said you're going to need go through a confidential memorandum and raise a, do a private placement. So I learned about that just by listening to some good financial people and had a very successful uh, private placement. Now this was in the 60s. So in the early 60s, I raised three quarters of a million dollars. That was a lot of money then. And I started growing and we were growing rapidly. Then I had, we were doing so well and coming up with so many great inventive ideas and products. Uh, these entrepreneurs came back to me, these financial people, and said, now's the time to do an IPO. 
And I said, what's an IPO? I have no idea the difference between an IPO and a manhole cover. What is that? <laughs> oh, that's an initial, uh, private, initial public offering. Okay, what do you mean go public? And they said, no, they started explaining to me. And they said, you've got to go through the Securities Act thing. So I said, okay, fine. I went to the library, took out the, a volume of the 1934 Securities Act, and read it cover to cover, and became an expert on S1 and S2 registrations. And with that, I had a very, very successful public offering. And we raised, uh, at that time, we raised a million and a half dollars over and above what I had, and the company was growing rapidly. So I became very knowledgeable about Wall Street, public offerings, the stock market, as well as running a company. And I had 125 people, and it worked well. Of course, there was another little story that went along with that. Let's hear it. Uh, by growing. The company was doing so well, and we were really, and I felt I was always a giving kind of person, so I paid my employees well, my production people well, all my technical staff, and gave them lots of benefits, lots of health care. And one day I heard some rumbling in the production area that they wanted to unionize. And I figured, why in the world would these people want to unionize? I'm giving them 10 times more than they could ever expect. And I just heard there were a few people in there instigating and I had some people coming in and infiltrating from the union and I figured well I'm a problem solver how do I solve this problem so I, I picked one early morning and this was of everybody it was a nice sunny day I went to the production area there was 125 people back there I stood on the highest work table and I said listen folks I've got a story to tell you I said we just went public the company's got a lot of money. I'm really in a comfortable position. I'm very happy. But I hear that you want to unionize, which doesn't make sense to me. This is your company. It's your benefit. I've got everything I want. So I've decided that I don't need these headaches. So as of 10 o'clock this morning, I'm shutting the company down. You're all out of work. So pack whatever you have. Go home. Thank you very much for all your services. I don't need the company anymore. And obviously, you don't need the company anymore. So it shut down at 10 o'clock. Wow. And everybody, oh, terrible. And I said, oh, and by the way, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, my HR department gave me some great ideas. And I think I want to start another company just like I had. So anybody that's interested in interviewing for that, stop by at the front door again at 2 o'clock. And we'll be interviewing for those people that really want to come in and offer, you know, and offer their services under our original opportunities. And everybody stood up and clapped and said, we're so sorry, Ron. We're so sorry. We'll never think about unionizing again. And it worked. I never had a after that. So it was a risky thing to do. But I figured, how do you solve the problem? And it, it's either take everyone by the shoulders and shake them and say, what are you doing and why? And they realized that it was a foolish move. So they you were bluffed them. So it worked. <laughs> and after that, we, we kept producing, and I sold the company to a, uh, a a very large insurance company. Got it. The first time I thought I wanted to retire, I was thirty years, thirty five years, or thirty four years old. And after about six months, I realized I didn't want to retire. I was. On my summer, I was on my boat at my summer home, and after about six months of fishing and doing nothing and watching everybody else go to work, I figured, this is ridiculous. This is not my way. So I went back to the company I sold it to, and I said, I want to relinquish all my options, all my shares, and I just want you to let me off the contract and go. I kept the money they, they paid me, of course, and that was my next operation that I went into. All right, let's talk about the next operation. That was an interesting interesting arrangement because I had no idea as to what I wanted to do. So I formed a company called General Associates because I figured that was a broad enough name. And I had a lot of contacts, so I was going to be a rep to sell communication products. And I was very sharp in telecommunications because that was part of the, the operation that I got involved in. I was, I was a, really a data communication expert. And I started selling other people's communication products. And one day I called on a very large client of mine. It was Associated Press. And while I was talking to him about some multiplex equipment, I saw, at being a salesman, I saw something on his desk and I was reading it upside down. And it was a bid sheet from the Western Union Company. And I asked him, I said, what, what is this? And he said, oh, this is 
this is great. He said, you know, we do a lot of telecommunications. We use teletypes for telegrams and so on and so forth. And, of course, they were the days. This was in the 60s. And he said they they come up with uh, bid sheets every week because they refurbish thousands of teletypes and they take a lot of parts and recycle them and they ask us to bid on the surplus. And I said, well, that's great. I said, would you be, could I, would I be interested in this? And he said, go ahead and take it. He said, we no longer need the equipment. Go ahead and do it. So I started bidding on teletypes. And right around that time, this was in the mid, early 70s, PCs came out. And they were using selectric typewriters for I.O. devices. There were no video terminals yet. And then they were using Twix and Telex machines, teletypes, for the I.O. for PCs, the clones. And I figured, what a great thing. And I started bidding because they were Twix and Telex machines. I started bidding on them at Western Union with some of their other equipment. And I was winning it for pennies on the dollar because what happened was they would refurbish them every week. And some of them were, were good, some good parts, some old parts. They would just take the machines, whatever case they were in, and refurbish them. So I was taking this stuff, picking it up. I hired somebody to go through it. And we were selling parts teletype parts for 50 cents on the dollar and anything that was good I'd refurbish and sell as IO devices so I was in the teletype business recognized opportunity and I was selling IO devices for people that wanted PCs so I started a little operation in the basement of my home I took mineral spirits and a, and a compressor to dry them and clean them I'd sell them out of my garage one day and this was the big story one day, Western Union decided to totally divest themselves of the Twix and Telex business and go into satellite. And they, they put all 12,000 machines up for bid. And these were old machines that were used on battleships, heavy in weight and size and steel cabinets. And they had communication machines or communication devices in the, in the bottom. And I bid on them, bid pennies on the dollar. And nobody else bid on them, which was surprising to me. And I won all 12,000 machines. Problem was, 4,000 were close to my little shop at home, um, within 60 miles. The other 8,000 were all over the country. Now I had a major problem. How do you solve problems? Because I was supposed to take possession of them in 30 days. They weighed hundreds of pounds. I called the scrap dealer. The scrap dealer said, let's take a look and see what there's, what's in the bottom of these machines. And they were very rich in printed circuit cards. They were the days where everything was hardware. And the printed circuit cards were all gold traces mm -hmm. because back in the 50s, gold had great conductivity. It was very inexpensive. And they would mount the transistors and resistors and capacitors on these cards. Well, the cards had gold fingers. So these folks said, let's take these cards, cut the gold fingers off, put them in a cyanide bath, the cyanide will eat the gold away and bring up the gold salts to the surface. We'll skim it off, we'll assay that, and we'll split the profits 50-50. We made so much money because at that time, in the mid-70s at that time, gold went from $45 an ounce to $800 an ounce. Now I owned all these machines for nothing, but now I also had 8,000 pieces of junk because all the electronics was out and it was just old printers and scrap cabinets. I called another junk dealer. You know, what do you do? How do you solve a problem? This junk dealer said they were working with Toyota at the time. And in the mid-70s, Toyota was having a rust problem with their cars. They didn't have enough chromium in the steel. And when they looked at these cabinets, these were the cabinets that were used on the battleships for, so that they wouldn't rust. They were loaded with chromium. They went and called Toyota and said, we have a, a tremendous amount of steel cabinets with chromium. Can you use them? I gave them away for nothing. I was home free. Now I had 4,000 machines that I could be in the teletype business and refurbish and sell them to communication companies. That started the story with the New York Stock Exchange. Now let's go into that. I, I, I love that story. I think that, I think that let's definitely segue right into that. And this is how you recognize opportunity, make your mistakes, reflect. It's the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that could happen was I would just go back to Western Union and say, I can't take delivery. I'll give you everything back. I mean, it's yours. Whatever. I could worst case the situation and get out of it. But I turned a, a, a challenge into an opportunity. And that opportunity 
was the rest of my career for the next over a quarter of a century. Because in that uh, batch of 4,000 machines that I was refurbishing for orders to sell to companies like RCA and ITT, there were over 200 special teletypes in there that were very strange. I got a call in the mid-70s from the New York Stock Exchange saying that they had called Western Union because they were doing a trading floor expansion and Western Union had over 200 special teletypes that they used for their inquiry stations on the trading floor. And Western Union said, we sold them to this little company called General Associates. They called me and said, you have machines that we need. We no longer want to rent them from AT&T. Are you willing to sell them? And I said, let me come up to the exchange and talk. So I gave them a full payout lease over two years. They were elated. They were happy. And I said, as long as you give me a maintenance contract to maintain these things on the trading floor for as long as they're here. They said, wonderful. I hired a man and I would go to the New York Stock Exchange every day. We'd run around the trading floor. As the machines would fail, we'd put in a replacement. I'd bring it back to my little shop, repair it. So I was now in the service business, had a great cash cow there. I was getting maintenance every month and the uh, the cost of the machine full payout lease. That opportunity was wonderful because here I am at the New York Stock Exchange, which was antiquated at that time. They had piles and piles of paper on the floor because they used to use Mark Sense cards. They had no automation at all. And what an opportunity. So I developed program trading and many, many other things. I hired a couple of software people and we came up with all kinds of great ideas to automate the exchange, get them through some processes real quick and save them a lot of money. And then in 1983 was the big break. That's when I recognized that they had never automated the corporate listed bond trading floor. It was still an auction floor. They had equities uh, automated, but they never had the corporate listed bonds automated. I automated that, became a vendor of corporate listed bonds, developed a whole system for Wall Street, and built myself a great rental business and service business of providing uh, monitoring for corporate listed bonds for New York Stock Exchange. That was an operation for over a quarter of a century. And there's lots of other little stories in there and amongst that, but it's just recognizing opportunity. It all came about from reading upside down on a client's desk a bid sheet from Western Union. Isn't that interesting? It's it's amazing. It's it, you know what's really amazing to me is that you know back then the information isn't as or wasn't as readily available as it is today. So it's like how did you go about you know you spot all these opportunities, but it, for you to understand how an IPO works, how your spine works, all these different things takes a lot of work. You know how did you go about collecting all this information and and, and figuring out how to uh, separate signal from noise? Asking some questions evaluating the, the capability and the credibility of those that would answer my questions. And if they couldn't answer it, read about it. But mostly, there's enough people out there that know a lot about things that we don't know about and that we should know about. And you gain that knowledge and you, you check the credibility to find out when you have advisors. There's two different things. There's advice and there's opinion. You don't want people's opinions because they're not qualified. They're not credible, but you want their advice, and their advice is valuable if they've experienced some of these things and you learn from them, and then further dig into it to expand on it, and that's, that's the way we learned in those days when we didn't have the internet and Google and all these things that we can go through and, and find just by searching, and that was the process I followed. Okay. And... You know, let's. You know, we had a conversation at um, at that conference. You know, and I and you you talked about you know for for entrepreneurs, it's all about building an initial cash cow first. Then you after you have that set, you can go on and to move on th- move on to things that are even more interesting to you. Can you kind of talk about that? Yes, because the experience I gained when I uh, after I left a large corporation and formed my own company and went through the great growth cycle of one employee myself up to 125 employees with building three buildings at the same time because I was expanding, I learned that I wasn't able to be as creative as I wanted to be as an entrepreneur because I was too busy managing people. And during the growth cycle, I learned that 
I was managing 125 people. When a when a when a manager or a CEO should only really be managing five efficiently, and those five can manage five more efficiently. So you have to establish the the corporate tree with the the levels of subordinates to run the company. So I, I painfully went through a lot of growth, learning how to manage 125 people, and then finally hiring subordinates who could manage for me. So all through that growth process, I was building a company, but I wasn't exercising totally all my entrepreneurial talents and discovered that what I really wanted was to build something that I had total control over myself and learn from my own opportunities and surround myself with a few people that could help me. So after I sold that company, I said to myself, I never want a company that's labor intensified again. I never want a company that big. And if it does grow to that point, it'll be where I can have subordinates really taking over and I just want to be on for myself. So that's why I, I decided that I wanted to build a company. My first thought at that time was the next time I go into business, I want to sell once and build myself a cash cow. So whatever the benefit was that I was going to offer, if I only sold it once, and just built myself a repetitive business where I was something that I can collect on every month, service or product or expendables, that would work. And that's what it turned out to be. Beautiful. That's right. Love it. All right, so wrapping it up here, you know, we, final few questions from my side. You know, first thing I want to ask you um, is, you know, th this new product that you're coming up with, this new invention, can you talk about it? Sure. It's it's basically very simply it's it's a device to help the visually impaired, the blind. Right in this country, we have over 21 million visually impaired people, and in the in the world, we have 300 visually impaired people, 300 million. And it came about by I wanted to help a friend, and one day I was just having uh, lunch with him, and he was I was having breakfast. I'm sorry, and he was um, blinded at age 16 in high school lost the use of one hand and totally blind. However, he has a wonderful career, grew tremendously, was an executive VP for a company, now is an executive uh, director for a, a seeing eye guide dog school. And I asked him one day, I said, what's on your wish list? Because he's a close friend. And he said, I would like to be able to identify the everyday things that I come in can contact with. And he said, I know that that's very possible with a lot of sophisticated electronics, just how we put people on the moon, but that's not really feasible and that's economically feasible either. And I said, let me think about it for a couple of weeks. I went home and a week later I came up with the idea of something that utilized specially highly sophisticated coded labels and an app on a PC, on a, uh, not a PC, I'm sorry, on a cell phone. And what, is it, what you're able to do is you can acquire, any blind person can buy a list, a, a group of 100 of these labels for less than $20. We would sell them for less than $20. So there's no investment on their part. And they can take any label, paste it on anything that they want. One of their drugs in their medicine chest, some of their things in their, their cupboard, their peanut butter, their jelly, their clothing, whatever they want. And they walk in the room with this app on their cell phone and walk within four feet of any one of these labels that are very only specially readed, read by this device. And then they'll say, describe what it is that you want to, what you're uh, marking. So they would put it on a device, point it at the device, and then state in there what the item was. Then any other time that they would walk in with the, that phone with the app and point it at something with that device, it would tell them on the loudspeaker in their ear what the device is. And it's just, it went so well. I thought I was going to start another company and go into manufacturing. And then after a while, I figured now's the time to really develop this, patent it, create it, then look for a company that I could license to really build the app and, and begin the, the whole process. And I would just market it. And we're just about ready to release that. I have a company in Portugal that's doing it for me. They did a magnificent job, and we're going to be uh, re announcing it probably within the next 30 days, and it'll go into service the first quarter of next year. 
So anybody, any visually impaired person, macular degeneration or totally blind, can just pick up a hundred of these labels, paste it on anything they want, describe what it is, and anytime they point the phone at it again, it tells them what it is. Wow, that's amazing. It has unlimited capabilities, but it's so simple, it doesn't infringe on any other thing that you need to just have this service. Awesome. And it, works it works great. Great. Well, you know, if you said earlier, you know, don't stop and don't ever stop, and you're not stopping right now, so definitely it can, can appreciate the, just everything you're doing right now and everything you've done so far. You know. um, so, well, I'm helping a lot of other people now, too. I'm doing a lot of consulting for other people with ideas and explaining them that you don't sell your ideas, you sell the benefit. And that's important. So if, if your concept and your idea develops a benefit and it has quality to it and there is some form of intellectual property, not necessarily patentable, but something that has benefit and can provide usefulness to others, this is what I'm helping them with. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And I guess, you know, for, for the audience, for people that have interesting ideas, you know, how many people are you working with right now? Well, in the last few years, I think I've done over 200 provisional patents for people. Wow. And I work on about, I would say, I usually have anywhere from 10 to 15 clients at a time. Wow, amazing. You're a machine, Ron. You're a machine. Final okay. question. Um, final question is, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? Always, well, understand that knowledge is power. And always be aware of everything that's happening around you because if you learn and you can share from what you're learning, you're really making your contribution in the world. Just don't breathe the air here. Make some kind of contribution. We're here for a very short period of time. Do something with your life and offer a contribution. Help Amazing. others. Amazing. So, Ron, you know, thanks so much for being on the show, everyone. This is Ron. This is the guy that will teach you how to IPO. This is the guy that will teach you about patents. And the guy that has done everything that has affected, you know, now, now that I think about it, probably billions of people. So, Ron, appreciate your wisdom. Appreciate everything you've done. Um, thanks for being on the show. Hope to have you again sometime soon. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It was a pleasure. Really All right. Fun. Take care. Bye-bye. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online, including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.